Victor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Finding Human. My guest today is Ruth Katz, and our topic is Do Not Label Me. You can WhatsApp us on 061-895-1019, or you can SMS us on 34519. Soren Kierkegaard said, Once you label me, you negate me. Now, Ruth is a social worker, a consulting social worker, and her specialities are bipolar mood disorders, families of alcoholics and stroke survivors, and also working with families who are coping with people with any disorders. Um, I was doing a promotion of High FM. We were um, doing a promotion outside Pick and Pay Norwood when Ruth came up to me and told me her story. And I was so taken aback, actually, that she could be so incredibly brave to come up and say to me, I am a social worker, I run workshops, I give lectures on bipolar disorder, and I myself am a survivor and a sufferer of this disease, bipolar. So, Ruth, welcome, and I'm really so pleased you did come up and introduce yourself and that you're here sitting opposite me today. And you're going to be telling us your story. Thank you, Sue. How are you feeling being back here? I know you've been on radio before. How does it feel today? It's been quite a while, but I feel great. Uh, Knowing that a lot of people around the world are all out there supporting me and rooting for me. I'm so pleased to hear that because without support system, we don't get very far, do we? No. We are, have got Particularly in a mental health field. (laughs) Absolutely. Particularly in a mental health field. You're right. I have got a few um, YouTubes that you'll be listening to and hopefully they'll also give you some insight into mental disorders. But right now, um, I just wanted to talk to Ruth about her story. Ruth, tell me, when you were a young girl, when was your first episode that you realized that something didn't feel quite right in your life? Well, if I start very early on in life, Sue, I had encephalitis when I was five. And it was in the middle of a polio epidemic. And I'm actually, I think I'm lucky to have survived it. But I do believe it had significant effects on my brain. And to the extent that I think that I was, I still am not able to really calculate very well. Okay. When I was around 12, I started having very dark thoughts. <clears throat> we had just moved from Sandringham, where I had great friends, opposite the golf course, to Linksfield. Okay. And I felt very dislocated from my friends. And this and is I, very much part of bipolar, isn't it? Is that it is and so often comes up in adolescence in very other much forms. So, very much mm. so. The bulk of people get diagnosed between 15 and 19. 
Were you actually diagnosed I then? Did you share? I was not diagnosed at that time. I was diagnosed 10 years later, 29. Did you share those dark thoughts that you were having with no, anyone at the time? No, I didn't. So you kept it inside yourself? Yes, I did. That's a very, very lonely place to be. Very much so. Because I was an only child. Um, and you were at a new school? Uh, well, no, not really. I had come up from the primary school, King David Primary, uh, to the King David High School. But my parents were old school. Even when I was at Tara the first time, my dad said to me that, Ruth, this is not a place for you. When you were at Tara? Mm. Yes. Mm. And may I go on and talk about my Aunt Tilly? Yes, you know, you did mention to me, I, I just wanted to say that you, your diagnosis was given as bipolar 1. Correct. We will go into that shortly. Tell me about Aunt Tilly because often bipolar is genetic, does seem to go through families. I can't make it brief. Aunt Tilly was one of my father's eight siblings who came out here in the early... Um, my dad was born in 1913. They came when, when he was about 10 from Lithuania. And they came with the curves on their back and only that, ahead of fleeing from the Cossacks who were trying to kill them. Mm-hmm. And Tilly, the, all the others went out to work in the cities, but Tilly stayed at home to keep house for them. And somewhere around there, she had what was then called a nervous breakdown. And she was shipped off to a, an institution. I think it was one of the Laugh Institutions in, in the Springs Brackban on the East Rand. And every month on a Saturday afternoon, my dad and his three sisters and one brother went to visit her. But I was never told where they went. I so didn't doubt whether my mother knew. Did you know Aunt Tilly? No, I never met her. But so, I think she had a, a depressive breakdown. So all you knew was that your father and his siblings used to go off every weekend, once a month, to go and visit her. Correct. But never spoke about her. Never. So how did you eventually surmise that she had had a nervous breakdown? I was told by my older cousin, Maxine. uh, I'm one of nine cousins on my father's side. I'm the youngest. Maxine, late Maxine Shevel, was the oldest. She told me. Okay. She told me where they went. So your own, your father and your mother never actually admitted to there being a problem at all. Mm. That that is a very lonely place to be, isn't it? Right. So when, My reaction when I heard about Aunt Tilly, I felt I would like to have met her. What would you have liked to have done with her? I would have liked to ask her what it was like to be in, in, in a place of, 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 a, of a, what they called a sanatorium in those days, and what it was like for her. And what it was like to be in her own very dark place inside. Exactly. You probably would have learnt a lot about yourself there too. I'm sure I would have. And... I do believe that by talking about it now to the next generations, we are able in many ways to take some of the fear out. I agree. I agree. Now, your your mom, uh, you did tell me about your mom, and she, you were an only child. Correct. Did your mother have other children before you? And what she happened did. there? My mom and dad got married in 48, and in 49, uh, my mom had a boy who died two days after birth from unknown causes. I was then born on the 14th of December, 1950. And then my mom went on to have two other boys. Both The one also died on two days of unknown causes, 
and the other one, the fourth one, she had German measles in the third trimester of the pregnancy, of, of the first trimester of pregnancy, no, the third trimester of pregnancy, and they had to give her a therapeutic abortion. Gosh, so you, in, in many ways, you had to shoulder this pain in your family. Very much so. Were you the ideal child? Did you try to become this ideal child in your family? I suppose I did, but mm. I was spoiled horrendously by my dad. How were you? Yeah. Did that pay off, or did it was it a burden? Or it was a, a mixed eat? blessing. Ah. Mm. I can imagine, but it's quite something to actually be the only child after those losses, mm. and to take that on. I think there were a lot of expectations placed on me. Mm. My mother and I did not see eye to eye. We had a very fraught relationship. And when because I didn't meet up to her expectations. Uh, what were her expectations of well, you? Well, if I may be perfectly blunt, may I be blunt? Yes, of course. My mother frequently said, why can't you be like the children of so-and-so? Uh, so and you were compared? Very much so. But it was, it was common in those years. Mm, mm, mm. I can't, I can't what, judge you for that. What did your mum... Uh, are we just going to add break? This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, it's Sue Jackson. We're now going to be listening to YouTube before going back to Ruth's story. And it's <coughs> by um, Kay Redfield Jamison uh, on the descent into madness. Kay Redfield Jamison is a, a bipolar sufferer. She is a professor of uh, psychiatry at John Hopkins uh, Medical uh, School and quite an amazing woman to listen to. Well, I suppose it's, it's funny. It's, it's a little like the waves of grief. I think you have waves of awareness. Um, and one of the things that I found with grief was that actually I was well, well prepared for it by the cyclicity of my manic depressive illness and because I was used to things coming and going um, and so forth. So I think that my awareness of having uh, bipolar illness really, you know, when I was 17, I got very, very depressed, and I was psychotic, and I didn't have any energy, and it was totally, I, I, I just, but I didn't have the words. People didn't talk about it at that time, and people certainly didn't have the words bipolar illness or manic depressive illness. So I just was terrified. Um, I had no idea what had happened to me. And I was very frightened, and I was frightened it would come back. But I got well, and then I did what everybody or most people do when they get well. I sort of put it behind me again. And then it would come and hit me again and again. And so I knew there was something wrong. Um, I started to see a psychiatrist, tried to see a psychiatrist when I was in college. And I ended up just running away, and I couldn't tolerate the idea of doing that. Um, but then when I was, I after got my degree and I, I joined the medical school faculty at UCLA, I became ravingly manic and very psychotic, hallucinating, delusional. I didn't have any choice. And it was the great, it's the great advantage of having an illness as severe as mine is that you are automatically brought into the medical care system. If you have a, until, as long as it was milder, I could kind of get by with actually out having to face what I was the severity of my problem, and I I knew the person I wanted to see. It was somebody I had trained with. He was my clinical supervisor, and I had seen him with patients, and I had seen that he was tough and smart, 
and compassionate and humanist, but also knew science and, and medicine. And so I went to him terrified. And he was just absolutely firm in his diagnosis. He just never wavered. Um, and he just said, that's the way it is. But he was kind about it, but he didn't back off from it. And he was a great psychotherapist. And so one of the things I've tried to do in my professional life, like a lot of my colleagues, is to emphasize, you know, medications just aren't enough for many people with these illnesses. Because exactly what you're saying is, how do you become aware of an illness? You become aware of an illness by understanding yourself and understanding the meaning that that illness has in your own life, symbolically and, more importantly, quite literally. I've primarily been psychotic when manic, uh, which is not uncommon with mania. And um, it's been, mostly when I've been manic, it's been a very exhilarating sort of thing, including the hallucinations. Um, I went around the solar system. I went to Saturn uh, in my mind's eye. I went through star fields. It was it was a glorious sort of ecstatic experience, which is frequently the case with mania. When you think about a lot of the great religious ecstasies, there's a very manic quality to that, and very grandiose. They tend to be very universal, cosmic, related to everything's related to everything. Um, but I also had some very bad ones of, you know, uh, hallucinating myself as dead or as um, just covered with blood. I mean, it, mania is can be as terrifying as it gets. It is certainly as insane as one gets. And so it's it's frightening when it gets out of control. But there are periods of mania when it can be extremely attractive, unfortunately, probably, but true. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Ruth, I'm with Ruth Katz, social worker, talking about bipolar, her own journey with bipolar. And you can WhatsApp us on um, 34519 or you can uh, at least 061-895-1019 or SMS us on 34519. Ruth and I were nodding at each other and actually at one stage we, we had a bit of a, a laugh because um, she was saying that in her workshops or even in when she herself has been in therapy and sharing stories of maniac mania's uh, episodes, when once you're looking them at them from a sane perspective, they can be very funny. They are very funny. And, and thank God for laughter. In fact, when, when, when it was brought up in my workshop, people used to laugh like drains <laughs> at the bizarre things we did when we were manic. Mm-hmm. In retrospect. Absolutely. In retrospect. In retrospect. At the time, it wasn't funny. No. people were judging us, were laughing at us. And also, you say some very, very hurtful things and do some hurtful things in that mania often. Indeed, indeed. So that your family and your support system very definitely suffer with what is said. Exactly. Or done. Now, just to go back to your mom, so what were your dreams for your future? What did you want to do? Well, it just so happens that my mother was a professional actress. Oh, an actress, yes. Yes. There was no such thing as professional theatre in those days. She acted with the raps. And 
some of the people who acted with went on to become international stars. My first ambition was to become an actress as well. My mum, she was not keen on the idea. Well, she, first of all, you didn't live up to her expectations, or you want, she wanted you to be she, like she, her friend's she, children. She shot down the idea because she said I had to be able to sing, dance, and act. Mm -hmm. Could you do any of those things? I was taking drama lessons all through my school day. So you, you could. And ele, ele, what was all called elocution in mm -hmm. those days. Mm -hmm. I could, and I have a good singing voice, I've been told that. I did sing with the um, school choir at one stage. I do still sing when I'm feeling a little bit nervous. And, and you, you or, certainly or even have the looks very for Very joyous. It. I love music. I love vocal music. I still do. And uh, and what what were your other dreams then? So you wanted to be an actress, but you were yes. put off that. So what else did you want to do? My mum. Just going back to my mum, very early in life, I have a memory of my mother saying to me, you have no zitz flesh. Yes. What just Meaning, mm -hmm. in English, you cannot sit still. Okay. And I, she was quite right. So you Even had today, a monkey I run mind. everywhere. I don't <laughs> walk. <laughs> and I think that was the pre Presidents of mania. Right. So that's that monkey mind that can't sit still right. and jumps all over the that's place. That's right. But and it goes from it, branch it, to it, branch. It, it actually manifests in my physical body as well. Mm. I was always rushing everywhere and falling as well mm. as mm. a result. Right. That was very early on. So before twelve. Gosh, is that so? Yeah. So nowadays you probably would have been um, labelled as being um, AD, ADD. Possibly. Mm. Uh, do you also, often think it goes together? I do, I mm. do. I think there's a lot of overlap. And I, I'm encouraged in that thought by a book by Dr. David Miklovitz, Professor David Miklovitz, who is a professor of psychology at UCLA. Mm -hmm. I used some of his work to inform my workshop. And he said that ADHD and bipolar overlap in a great measure. They both show a lot of um, impulsive behavior mm -hmm. and thoughts. Uh, that is one of the ways they overlap. Mm -hmm. So they definitely can be confused then. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Ruth, going back now. Ruth, I'm with my guest today. It's Ruth Katz. And our topic is Do Not Label Me. Ruth is a social worker in private practice, and she herself is a bipolar sufferer. Or should I say a bipolar warrior? A, a polar bear. A polar bear, that's a good one. Where did you get that from? From my cop. <laughs> it shows you. Your monkey mind cop is working well, eh? Just go back now. So you then decided, you did tell me something about um, you wanted to be a journalist, uh, and but you've actually done a lot of what you planned to do, haven't you? I did. My mother um, took me to the Labor Department in the CBD. Yes. In Matric, where I was at King David Linksville. And they suggested after testing me, I do journalism, social work, education and law and in social work 
my social work career incorporated all four of them. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So it did. Now, when when did you have your first bad episode? You had your you got married and um, you had a child, Correct. a daughter. Correct. What? How did that go? How did the pregnancy go? And and uh, after the birth, I had a very easy pregnancy. The lady who did the prenatal courses suggested I take something called Caliphalum 6. It, it makes your labor very light, okay. and it did me as well. Oh. I had a very light labor, mm-hmm. no pain, hardly any pain at all. But after the birth, I had an enormous postpartum depression. How long afterwards? It plunged me into a severe psychosis. Oh, did it? How long afterwards did it actually hit you? Right away. Oh, immediately? Immediately. Mm. So what? who took care of the baby at the time? Well, my mom and mom-in-law were on hand, but I had a full-time domestic worker for the first six weeks of her birth. Okay. And, um, and were you hospitalized? I was. And did anybody diagnose you then, or was it just postpartum depression at the time? The first time I was hospitalized, I was sent to a place called Sanatoria, which is not far from the studio. It doesn't exist anymore. I was given approximately 10 to 12 uh, shots of of electroconvulsive therapy. Gosh, as much as that. Hmm. A lot. I Hmm. needed it. Hmm. And then after that, I was sent to Tara for about three months. Gosh, a long time to be away from your baby. Exactly. And uh, when you actually were in Tara, what were the feelings that you experienced then? Were you manic at the time or? I wasn't the, manic anymore. Had I, the electric therapy I just felt helped? that Tara was a place of safety for me. Oh, did it feel like that? I didn't want to leave. Mm. It soon became somewhere because the other patients were, were supportive. They'd all been to their own stuff and they knew where I was coming from. And quite frankly, people outside were not supportive in the league. Uh, so you didn't have a support system no, then? No, I didn't. Not at that time. Mm. And were you missing your baby at the time? Very much so. Mm. Must have been a very, very hard time for you. It was. I breastfed her. Can I tell you a little story, Sue? Mm-hmm. When my daughter was born, she was born at the, the old Queen Vic. Oh, yes. And I insisted on going there because it was the only place at the time would allow new moms to room in with their babies. Mm-hmm. The Marymount took the kids off to the, off to the um, um, nursery. Yes, I did actually some work at, at Queen Vic. This little scrap of a human being looked at me straight after birth as if to say, I want to suss you out, Mom. Who are you? It was like looking into her soul. Good I've never forgotten that experience. It's one of the most phenomenal experiences of my life. How beautiful. So she looked into your soul. Did you feel she understood you? I think she's an old soul. Uh, How wonderful that she actually came into your life when she did. I've got tears in my eyes now thinking about Mm -hmm. it. Happy tears. And then when you were actually in Tara... Did they diagnose you then as bipolar or? Prior to me going to sanatorium. Prior to that? Yes. Who, who actually, was it a psychiatrist? It who? was a psychiatrist, yeah. Okay. Were you relieved once you actually got a diagnosis? Very. What, what was your relief? Why were you relieved? 
because I knew what was wrong with me. Mm. And I know the people in my groups have said the same. And you didn't feel you were going mad no. once you had a diagnosis. Exactly. Mm. Did you feel there was help um, or did you feel that it was a hopeless situation? I was very confused at the time, very, very confused. But when I came out of Tara, I started reading everything. Because I am an inquisitive person, in fact, a lot of people who know me said I only married my first husband because of his name, Katz. <laughs> and cats are known to be inquisitive, yeah, you know, very. So I start, and I'm also a very prolific reader and always have been, I started reading up everything I could about the condition. And knowledge is power, as you know. So I realized there was hope. Very and much. And I've shared the statistics with you. Too, yes. About the amount of people who go on to remain very functional after they die. Very functional. It's the minority that do not go on to become functional. And I think that's something that we actually need to reinforce here for people who might be going through a stage of their own despair. There is hope at the end of the tunnel and you will go on to function again. Um, and, you know, this, that feeling of despair can be so overwhelmingly all-encompassing all when, when you're actually Absolutely. going through a stage Absolutely. like that. Now, just your social work, I know that at one stage in one of your manic um, episodes, you said... I've only had one. Right? Manic one. episode. Yes. Okay, and two depressive episodes. All right, but that manic episode, you told me something about your graduation certificate. Would you like to share that? My graduation that? program. Your program, oh, it was your program. Yes, I graduated from WITS in 1972 with a BA social work honours degree. Yes. And there's a story around that as well, but I won't go into it now. When I was working at REPRO, what, what is REPRO? REPRO is the rationalisation program of the giant Toyota group. Oh, okay. I was working there from 1976 to just before my daughter was born on the 2nd of June, 1977. And we were sourcing items for the giant Toyota group from tea bags to heavy machinery and everything in between. And while I was there, I, I, I loved being... My mom was always thrifty very thrifty. She'd lived through the Second World War mm -hmm. and never through anything away. Okay. She was way ahead of the reduced, recycled, and repurposed <laughs> by years and years. <laughs> uh, and I learned to be more thrifty there as well. So should we just go back a minute? I, I'm not quite sure where we started with the thrift. Okay. So what you, you were saying about when you actually were doing your graduation program, what happened That's then? That's right. Mm -hmm. While I was at Rappo, I scribbled it wasn't while I was rapper, but when I got into my I scribbled a lot of the names of the people that I worked with at rapper in red ink with 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 the with the cokey with the with the onto your graduation onto program. my graduation program. And when I look back on it today, I recognise the names, but there are other items on there. I have no idea what it was. Thinking. So your mind was beginning to veer my off mind in a was different direction. To go. Mm -hmm. Was that the first, and you say, only manic episode? Yes, it was. So how did it manifest? <sighs> Hard to tell because a lot of it I wasn't even You weren't aware mentally. of. Mm. Um, I know friends started saying to me, you are saying very strange things. But, and a lot of people that I thought were friends 
disappeared into the ether. Mm. Mm. I won't go into that. So it's, it's it does happen, though. It does happen. But there were people who did stack, stick by me, stand, stand by, by me. you. Mm. Um, I won't mention them by name. One of them was a school friend. Um, I've just got in touch with her, back in touch with her now. Uh, another one was a friend of, uh, the husband of a friend of mine, and there were others. So just going back to your your episode then, were you hospitalized? How You were saying that it did manifest. How was it, who picked up that you were actually becoming a psychiatrist? The psychiatrist. And I also knew something was wrong. So did you then approach a psychiatrist? No, my parents approached him. Okay. And um, and did he then hospitalize yes, you? Yes, he did. So you don't remember much of that episode? I have interludes where I mean, remember stuff. But ECT, I'm in favor of ECT. Which is the electrocardiac. Con- uh, electroconvulsive convulsive therapy. therapy sorry. But the downside is destroy short-term memory. It does destroy short-term memory. And more so then, I think, than it does now. It was much more... In its initial stages, then, mm. then now, mm. so it was far more invasive, really, wasn't Very it? Very much so. Mm. Mm. And uh, how long were you in hospital? Uh, were you hospitalised then? In in sanatorium, around ten days, and I think, if I remember correctly, I went straight from there to Tara. Okay, and you were in Tara for quite a while. Two and a half to three months. Mm. I met my second husband in Tara. Oh, did you? In the meantime, had you got divorced? Had you, uh, did you, had you gone through I a was divorce? in Tara in 1980, mm-hmm. from June to September about, but only divorced in March 1982. And, um, and you got custody of your, your daughter I didn't. then? You didn't? Uh, well, I did after a four-day court battle. Oh, uh, well, we, you had to, be pretty sane for that to being given that. Indeed. So there, that in in that in itself is proof that there is sanity beyond the mania, and I think it's it's actually a wonderful thing to to recognise in you, Ruth, that you had the strength to actually overcome uh, your label and actually say, I am not my label, I'm so much more than that. And one of the things that you actually said in your, uh, when you sent me an email, look within, the secret is inside you, which is, you say, by Hu Neng, an ancient Chinese philosopher. What does that quote mean to you? It's actually for my clients. Yes. But for me as well, Mm -hmm. because I believe as a therapist and counselor, my job is to bring out what is inside them. They are, they are full partners in the process. I, they have their own strengths, but my job is to, it's called a strength-based re- approach. Right. In social work terms. Mm-hmm. Which is wonderful. So instead of looking at what's lacking, you're actually exactly. looking exactly. at what you can build exactly. on. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Viktor Frankl. Mm-hmm. And I'm totally in favor of, he said they cannot take away my thoughts and my meaning and my attitude. Absolutely. Well, they can strip me of everything else. And looking at you today, Ruth, I can see that they certainly have not stripped you of anything. You are a woman who is prepared to stand up 
come out with her story, share it with others to help others, and also in your work and in your life to actually live your life. I'm an activist for mental health, Sue. I can see and have you been are. for many years. Mm-hmm. That's that's a wonderful thing to be. Now, do you have you you have subsequently remarried? Yes, I have. Have you had more children? No, I haven't. Was that a choice? No, it wasn't. I was advised by a psychiatrist not to have more children because I was taking lithium at the time, and they did not know the effect lithium would have on the unborn baby. Oh, uh, uh. so was that a disappointment for you? Very much so. And your daughter, did you, you were saying that in your own um, life, you, they never shared with you um, what actually was happening with your dad's sister. That's right. Did you share with your daughter what was happening in your life? I did. In fact, just I want to wish my daughter a happy birthday for tomorrow. Oh, she was happy born birthday. on the 5th of June, 1977. What's your daughter's name? Her name is Jessica Keat. And, where and does she, she has three delightful grandchildren. Lives you in know, Los children, West you Los Angeles. Yeah. She's got three delightful children, your grandchildren. grandchildren. She right. rang me this morning early to, to wish me muzzle tov for this broadcast. Well, she I hope she's does. listening she's in. She's the most considerate child in the world. Oh, isn't that wonderful? So when you shared with her what was happening in your life, did you feel she understood because you said right yes, from birth? Yes, but I made sure not to burden her with the knowledge. Okay. I gave her information in very small doses that she could handle. Age-appropriate small doses. Mm-hmm. That's very important, isn't it? Very. Mm. And actually, she's been very fortunate to, to know that what has gone on, because someone once said that if you don't tell your children, they actually feel that they've done something wrong when they exactly. see you withdrawing from exactly. them or behaving exactly. in an odd way. They blame themselves exactly. when and it's got nothing to do with them. When I was at university, we did developmental psychology, um, and I studied Eric Erickson and Jean Piaget, All right. and it came out very strongly in their writings, this very point you've been making about children blaming themselves mm-hmm. because their minds aren't yet developed enough to actually face reality. Absolutely. And it, uh, they aren't, brains aren't developed until approximately 21. I, I study neuroscience and that, that is the conclusion they have come to now. So would you, with your own patients who come to see you, would you always suggest that they tell their family or do you sometimes bring a family in for it a consultation? It depends on the uh, situation. Okay. So I'm very upfront about my condition with people that I think need to know. Mm. Not all my clients are bipolar, but I judge the situation on its own merit. Okay. So coming, they, they don't actually know when they come to you. No, they don't. Okay. Sometimes they do. I use my judgment on the phone to see whether it's, an, it's a need to know or not need to know. And whether it's appropriate to exactly. share or not. And uh, I know that your master's degree in social work, you actually wanted to do it when you were in the sanatoria, <laughs> which I found very amusing. <laughs> you did go on to do it, but not in the sanatoria. Twenty years later. <laughs> Twenty years later. <laughs> you, you definitely had high hopes then at the time, though. <laughs> Look, I, I knew I would do it eventually. Absolutely. I've always been a very curious kitty and I wanted to study further. And And people said to me, why don't you do your doctorate? 
<laughs> but I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> I just wanted to ask um, uh, Craig. Sorry, Craig. This I had this um, YouTube that I wanted to play. Um, by Andrew Solomon. Could we just put that on? Andrew Solomon is also a very interesting um, psychiatrist. He's a, an activist in the um, gay, uh, ling- uh, the lesbian gay community. And um, I would start by saying that it's a significant poverty of the language that we use the same word to describe how a child feels when it rains on the day of his baseball game and how someone feels who decides to uh, commit suicide. That we use this one word, which has both a colloquial and a clinical application, and it would be helpful if we had separate vocabulary. Having said that, I think depression lies on a continuum with ordinary sadness and pain and withdrawal, um, that many of the things that are characteristic of the clinical condition of major depression are initially uh, similar to things that are typical of someone who's just having a, a bad day or a rough time. I always say that the opposite of depression is not happiness, but vitality. And when someone is severely depressed, what they lose is the vitality. It's the will to live. It's the energy to do things. It's the ability to engage themselves um, with the business of life. It's not just that they feel really, really sad the way that someone does who's experienced a loss and is going through grief. I also think there's a complicated relationship between illness and personality and that there are some people who have experiences of very extreme depression who in some way are able to keep up a better facade than other people are. But the fact that someone is functioning during a depression doesn't mean that depression isn't really acute. When you ask about the distinction between depression and ordinary sadness or um, ordinary grief, I sometimes think that it's you know, you talk about uh, a fence that's rusting, and you would use the same word rust if the fence had a couple of little orange spots on it. And you would also use that word if it had crumbled into nothing but powder. And it's the same phenomenon, and it's happened to the same fence, but they're two very different situations. And one of them you can probably fix with a lick of paint, and in the other, there's nothing there to fix. And I often feel when I talk to people who are experiencing major depression that they are, in fact, moving toward being that completely collapsed fence, which is not to say that major depression is not in many instances treatable um, and that many people don't manage to resolve it. But um, it's something that's sort of, it's a, a gradual blurring where it goes from being uh, a normal set of moods and circumstances to being something completely intolerable, unlivable, unmanageable, devastating, and, and paralyzing. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson. My guest today is Ruth Katz, and our topic is Do Not Label Me. And Ruth is a social worker in private practice, and she is also a bipolar uh, sufferer, and should I say a bipolar survivor and warrior. That you've just heard Andrew Solomon, and if any of you would like to hear more from him, he's got some incredible TED Talks that I would really encourage anyone who's feeling uh, uh, depressed or sad to listen into his work, and also to Kay Redfield Jamison. A message has come through. It says, you are such an encouragement for me, Ruth. At least I don't feel alone as I identify with my experiences. Val Rankin-Prinsloo. 
Thank you so much, Belle. That is great. I know her very well. Oh, that's great. She's a good friend of mine. She's a good friend of Ruth's. That's wonderful, Ruth. That's so nice to know. Now, you know what, what Andrew Solomon was talking about there was the rusty fence, and sometimes it's just a lick of paint, and sometimes the whole fence collapses. But there's a lot of stigma and superstition around um, many um, of our uh, conditions, mental health conditions. Can you tell me a bit about the different superstitions and stigmas attached? Do you think there's a lot to it? I think it's because of ignorance. And I also think, Sue, that, you know, the old... I don't want to call it Red Indian, the American Indian saying, you cannot judge a man until you walked a mile in his moccasins. Yes. It's impossible, in my view, to understand the inside of a person with depression if you've never been there. Just like I cannot understand the experience of a person with diabetes because mm-hmm. I've never been there. Because both conditions have physical manifestations, sensations, which I haven't felt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have to agree with you, you know, and I think if only we could, with mental health, if only people would realize that it is a treatable disease, first of all, but that it is a lifelong illness. It is a lifelong illness. And just as diabetes has to be uh, treated as a lifelong illness, it's going to be there forever, and you've got to watch your, what you eat, what that medication that you're going to mix with it. Um, you, there are so many issues involved with mental health care, with the medication that can, if not actually looked after well, can push you into mania. One of them is uh, antidepressants. Mm. Yes. And if it's the wrong mixture, you can really exactly. be pushed over. And also, you know, Kay Redfield uh, also uh, talks about, which we, we're going to hopefully uh, have time for, she also talks about um, the feeling of euphoria so often in mania before you actually get out of control. There is this incredible feeling of euphoria, of creativity, and so often the medication, because it does dull that a bit, people are hesitant to actually go on to medication. Because they actually like the feeling. I've heard that. It has, has not been my experience. It hasn't been. No. Okay. I can only talk for myself. So for you as a bipolar one, your mania, has it come with creativity or, or just a crazy feeling? Well, I love to sing, Sue. Mm-hmm. Singing is my passion. Right. So in that sense, yes. I also love paper crafts. I love uh, poetry. So when you're I in a manic inspirational state, poetry. I love Wordsworth. Okay, but when you're in a manic state, do you sing? I'm sure I did. <laughs> you don't remember? Probably at the did. top of my voice. Mm-hmm. Quite uninhibitedly. <laughs> Has nobody reminded you of what you actually did do? Uh, people have reminded me, but in a gentle kind of a way. Okay. Yeah. Now, you once mentioned gaslighting. What does gaslighting mean? Gaslighting is relates to a film from the 1930s. was called Gaslight. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, it starred Charles Boyer. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to convince his wife that she was going mad. 
by dimming the gas lights in their house a little bit at a time. Oh. And she told him it was being dimmed, and he denied it. Okay. And he said, little lights on going dimmer. It must be in your imagination you go and cuckoo. So how is this used in mental health uh, jargon? Well, you know, the word narcissist is becoming the, 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 the word du jour today. Yes, it is. And these are not my words. I, I, I'm quoting people. They say one of the tactics that narcissists use is gaslighting. Not necessarily with a gaslight, but trying to, to challenge the other party's perception of reality in whatever form it may take. Mm, mm. Okay, so it's, in other words, it's to make you doubt yourself. Exactly. Very cruel thing to do, very, isn't it? Very, very. And especially if you are doubting yourself, because I think so, so much of mental illness is that feeling of worthlessness. I agree. Not, not when you're manic and you can often have uh, feelings of um, grandeur. But when you're actually in a, when it goes from the mania into a depression exactly. and that feeling of loss of self, if someone else is pushing that onto you, it's very easy to begin to internalize that, that you are useless, that you are going mad. I agree. And to me, depression alienates you from the world. Mm. That is my experience. Very lonely place to be, isn't very it? Very much so. mm-hmm. And for for you uh, going forward, Ruth, do you ever fear that you might slip back into mania? Or I've been compliant all my life. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by compliance? On my meds. They've been changed over the years. I had, a, uh, in 2005, I was admitted to the Linksville Clinic with the suspected stroke. And again in 2011, a suspected stroke, stroke, both times, were a result of overdose of medication. Oh, That is why my meds had to be changed. Mm -hmm. And uh, do you think that medicine uh, actually does need to, uh, I've often thought about this, that medication probably needs to be changed for the different phases of our own lives. I'm sure it does. Mm. I'm sure it does. Because just as Particularly our body in cha- women. Yes, I'm Because sure. of our hormonal change. Right. Okay. Do you think that there's more stigma attached to a man with depression than to a, or bipolar than to a woman by any chance? Just answer that before we go to I think both have a stigma, but men are more likely to commit suicide successfully Mm. because they hide their depression. Right. Women more likely to talk out their feelings with friends. With a friend. Yeah, or friend. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson. My guest today is Ruth Katz. Our topic is Do Not Label Me. And right now, you're going to be listening to Kay Redfield Jamison, Professor of Psychiatry uh, on Madness as Muse. Yeah, I think that, you know, there, you know, for thousands of years, people have made the observation that there's certain kinds of extreme depressive states that seem to be more likely to produce philosophers, people in the arts, uh, unusually brilliant scientists. And modern studies, a lot of modern studies have borne that out, that there's a disproportionate rate of mood disorders, of depression and bipolar disorder in 
highly creative groups uh, in the arts, sciences, and so forth. Um, I think that that's a real phenomenon. I think that the changes that go on in the brain when people are mildly manic, the experiences of the extreme states, the kind of experiences that people then go on to write and create about, um, all of those things, you know, I think are reasonably well documented. It's, it's controversial, but it's, you know, actually the studies are, are almost all in the same direction. There's, that doesn't get away from the fact that these people, a lot of these people who are highly creative also had very miserable lives. And I try and point this out when people start romanticizing, um, mental illness is that, you know, Byron and Van Gogh, you know, wanted to be treated. Byron traveled with doctors. Van Gogh admitted himself finally to the hospital. They, they were in agony and pain and, and, and suffering. So it's, it's not a romantic life. It may look romantic from the outside, but if you read their letters and uh, their correspondence with friends, you know, it's, it's not anything wonderful. And many of them died young by suicide. And the rate of suicide is also way disproportionately high in, in these uh, highly creative groups. And so the last thing you want is people dying young or dying prematurely in, in any event. So I don't think it has to be a choice between being creative and being on medication. In this day and age, we've got a lot of a wide variety of medications and psychotherapies, and people are kept at much lower doses than they used to be. I mean, it used to be in the early days of lithium, people were really tanked up on lithium. So that, you know, I think it really did happen. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson. My guest today has been Ruth Katz, and our label has been Do Not Label Me. We have been talking about bipolar. And if anyone of you listening in or would like to actually um, find out more about mental illness, please look it up on Google. There are many wonderful sites to go into, um, and you can go into Mayo Clinic as well. Next week, I have Peter Feldman, who's a journalist, film critic, high FM presenter, and he's joining me to tell his story about his survival. Ruth, thank you so much for being here today. It has gone very quickly. It always does. But thank you for having the courage to thank come and share your story. Thank you for inviting me, Sue. And go on with your good work as an activist for bipolar. You are certainly well worth listening to and it's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you you so much. We are listening to a a song now by Benny Friedman called No Time Like Now. Thank you for listening.